Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Good morning. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And because that's true, let's open our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. Happy resurrection morning. It's wonderful to see you. My name's Brad. I'm one of the pastors here. And if you're visiting with us for the first time today, uh, we're doing this morning on Resurrection Sunday, which the same thing that we do basically every Sunday morning, which is look at God's word and celebrate the goodness of God to us in Christ. We are in the middle of a journey through the letter of Hebrews. And you might be saying, well, it's Easter Sunday. Aren't you going to talk about what Jesus has done? Yes. And this text this morning that we find ourselves in, in God's good providence, is one of the most important and one of the most beautiful passages in all of the Bible to explain the work of Christ for his people. So we find ourselves in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. I'm going to read the text, then I'm going to pray, then we're going to work our way through it. Now listen up. If you're from Crosspoint, because it's Easter Sunday, don't act weird, okay? Loosen up a little bit. It's okay to say amen, open your Bibles, shake it out, let your hair down, and let's dig into God's Word. And if you are visiting with us for the first time, I'm so glad you're here. If you're a believer in Jesus, I hope that you are encouraged and edified and challenged. If you're not yet trusting in Jesus, I pray that today you would see and savor and that the Holy Spirit would open your eyes to the most important news in all of the universe. This is what we do every Sunday. I'm just going to read a few verses. I'm going to do my best to explain them and apply them to our lives. And then after I'm done preaching, we're going to have the privilege on this Sunday to see a young man, a new member of this church, be baptized. His testimony is going to encourage you and we're going to celebrate the gospel actually being pictured in front of us through water baptism. All right? Okay, let me read Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. I'll catch you up on a little bit of context as we go through and tell you why, what the situation is in a moment. But let me just for now read verses 14 through 16. These are some of the sweetest words in all the Bible. If you understand what these three verses are saying, you... You know, you may get lost in some Old Testament passages, and you may kind of wonder what's going on in Numbers and Leviticus. I get that. But if you understand what these three verses are saying, you, you understand the very heart of the message of the whole Bible. This is what the writer, the preacher of Hebrews says. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Amen. Let me pray and ask the Lord to help us. Lord, as we look at your word this morning, I pray that you 
would give us your grace to hear, that you would give me the grace to explain faithfully. Your word does not need to be adorned by anything, by no clever phrases or uh, no funny personalities. It doesn't need any of that. It simply needs the Spirit of God working through the Word of God in the hearts of your people, in the hearts of unbelievers. So Lord, would you do that today? Would we fall more in love with Jesus than we were when we came into this room, if we're believers? And any friends that are here today that do not know you, would you, by your sweet and sovereign mercy, open their eyes that they may see Jesus? And I pray in particular for myself that you'd give me the freedom of self-forgetfulness. That I would forget about myself. And you'd free me up to serve these people and serve you. And I pray it all for your glory and our good in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, I, I want to give you right up front the two things that I think this text is saying to us. Two exhortations. And I think really these two exhortations are the theme of our whole journey through Hebrews. And it is this, it's to hold fast to Jesus, to not go back, to hold on to him, to not give up on your faith in Jesus. And then secondly, I think the preacher of Hebrews in this last verse that we'll get to is telling his audience to not just hold fast to Jesus, but to draw near to God with confidence. So those are, I think, the two exhortations. That's really the outline of this text. That's what I, I want you to remember coming out of, of this time together. Hold fast to Jesus and draw near to God with confidence. And the context of this letter of Hebrews is written to first century Christians, very likely living in the city of Rome in the first century. They were most likely, certainly, all Jews. That's why the letter is named Hebrews. It was written to Jewish Christians, the early converts to Christ from Judaism. And they were living in first century Rome, and it's now been a few decades since Jesus' life and death and resurrection. And they're beginning to face increasing persecution by the Roman Empire. The Judaism was uh, an authorized religion in the Roman Empire, and so it was okay to be a Jew. And they were, in a sense, sort of socially protected. But now that they've converted to Christ, there is social persecution that is arising on the count of their faith in this Messiah. And the situation is, is that some of these early believers, some of these early Jewish Hebrew believers, are being tempted to go back, to draw back from Jesus and to go back to the old covenant, to go back to their, to their, their old ways. And the writer is exhorting them. He's saying, don't go back. And so really, the whole point of Hebrews is, is that Jesus is better than anything that you've come from. Specifically, he's zeroing in on these Jewish first century believers and the old covenant. So he starts off by saying that Jesus is better than the angels, which were the, the intermediaries of this old covenant. He's better than Moses. He's, he's better than the law. And he offers you this rest, which we looked at last week in Hebrews chapter 3. And now, here at the end of chapter 4, we're going to get into a sustained argument that he's going to pick up in chapter 5, which you'll all be back next week to, to get, right? right? He will pick up this argument how Jesus is better 
than the Old Testament priests. And here's the thing that you need to know, and this is underlined. This would have been ingrained in the mind and just the psyche. It would have just been on the subconscious of any first century Jew is that they knew they needed somebody to stand before them before a holy God. Because if there's one thing that Old Covenant theology, Old Testament theology taught them was that they needed a priest to stand before God to offer sacrifices for them. But what they didn't quite understand yet was that this Old Covenant, this Old Testament, even this picture of the priest was a shadow, an earthly temporary shadow, which was pointing to the true and better priest, which is Jesus, who is the one that stands between God and us. And so they're tempted to go back. They're tempted to go back to the priesthood, to to rely on a man to go into this earthly court for them to offer sacrifices. And the writer is saying, no, hold on to Jesus. So with that as a background, we're just going to look at verse by verse, in some places word by word, and then we're going to see our brother be baptized. Verse 14, let's look at it again. The writer says, since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession." So he's building on what we just looked at last week about this rest of God that that Jesus offers us rest, peace with God. And he has just laid us bare. In fact, a few verses before in verses 11 through 13, it talks about how the word of God has come like a sword. It's not a sword that we wield, but it's a sword that God wields against us in our sinfulness. And he cuts us open and we are all laid bare before God. And now, in this place of utter vulnerability, which every person needs to come to before a holy God, the preacher, the writer of Hebrews, sends us to Jesus. And he calls Jesus here in verse 14, he calls him a great high priest. Now for us, as modern day Americans in 21st century America, we don't necessarily have as much of an appreciation. It's not just in our instinct to think of priests. Maybe if you came from a Catholic background and you use that word and maybe it's a little bit more ingrained in your mind but for the first century Jew this concept of of a priest would have been very familiar to them and the writer here in Hebrews is he's making this connection between what Jesus does for them for us and what the Old Testament priests have done an Old Testament priest and especially the high priest was this one man from one particular tribe Amongst the 12 tribes, the tribe of Levite, he was a Levite, and he would have been chosen to be the high priest over the whole nation of Israel in the Old Testament. And whole chapters of Old Testament books are written to to delineate, to outline the responsibilities of this priest that he would have to offer sacrifices for the people. And in particular, there was this one day, one day of the year, The Day of Atonement. It's spoken of in the Old Testament book of Leviticus where this high priest would go into this court in the wilderness when Israel was roaming through the wilderness. It was this temporary tabernacle. And once they got into the promised land, it became this permanent temple. And it was was this place where the priest would go and he would offer sacrifices, the sacrifice of animals. And he would wash himself in the outer courts before he even went into the temple to 
to ritualistically purify himself before he goes into the holy place. And he there, he would prepare himself and he would burn incense as prayers then from to go from the holy place into the inner sanctum, the holy of holies. And in this holy of holies, there would be this Ark of the Covenant, this holiest of all places on earth where the very presence of God dwelled among his people. And this one man, this high priest, once a year would take the blood of a perfect spotless lamb that he had slaughtered outside the temple, outside their tabernacle, and he would bring that blood into this holy of holiest places, the holy of holies as it's called, and he would sprinkle the blood of this lamb on the mercy seat, where on this one day of atonement, the blood would satisfy, at least in a temporary sense, the holiness and the wrath of God for the sin of the people. The problem was is that he had to do this year after year after year. And here's this picture. The writer of Hebrews is now calling Jesus the great high priest. And notice what he says about this great high priest. He has passed through the heavens. So automatically he's, he's drawing a distinction between what these earthly priests do and what Jesus has done. He hasn't passed through an earthly veil or an earthly door to get to the Holy of Holies. He, through his life, his death and resurrection, has passed through the heavens. He stands before God in heaven. And what is he offering? Himself. Before a holy God. Let me just read to you a couple verses later on in Hebrews. Just, just listen, don't flip there. Hebrews chapter 1, or Hebrews chapter 8, I'm sorry, verses 1 and 2. It says, now the point in what we are saying is this, that we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. So he's taking us from this sort of horizontal earthly transaction in the Old Testament and he's lifting our eyes and he's saying that Jesus isn't in some tent in the desert or in some temple on the mount in Jerusalem. He is before God himself. And listen to what he says in Hebrews chapter 9 verses 11 through 14. We're going to get into this. It's going to take us a while to get there but, but, but hold on. Hebrews 9, verse 11 through 14. But when Christ appeared as the high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy place, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal Redemption. So, so the writer of Hebrews, come on, this is, this is easy. You can understand this. Even if you've never had any contact with the Bible or maybe you've never even read Hebrews, friends, you can understand this. The point is this, is that we all need somebody to go before us and God. And the whole Old Testament was meant to just be a picture, a temporary picture of what we need, pointing us to the ultimate reality, which is Jesus. And the writer of Hebrews here in 14 Verse 14 is saying that we have a high priest who stands before God on our behalf and he offers up himself. 
And he's saying, this is how good Jesus is. And part of this is, so therefore, don't go back. Don't rely on anything else. He's passed through the heavens. And who is he? He is Jesus, the Son of God. He's not just a man. He is the God-man, the man Christ Jesus. 1 Timothy 2.5 says, there is one mediator between God and man. The man Christ Jesus. So he's not just a good man. He's not just a priest. He's not just a a really well-intended person who loves us a lot. He's actually God the Son standing before God the Father. And He is offering Himself. And so the conclusion of the writer of Hebrews is that we should hold fast, hold fast to Him. Hold fast our confession. And what does this mean to hold fast on to our confession? Because with these confessions, just words, we're not, you know, we don't grab a hold of something that we are saying. We're we're grabbing a hold of what we are saying we believe, which is this, what Jesus has done for us, what we believe about Jesus, the truth of the most important news in the world, that we are by nature sinners and that God has done something to reconcile sinners to himself through his son. We're holding on to that and nothing else. That's what he's saying here. Hold on to, hold on to what Jesus has done for you. Don't hold on to yourself. Implicit in this, friends. Look, when you read a, a passage like this, it doesn't say all that the Bible says about us before God, but implicit in this is that we will be standing before God someday, and what will be our plea? What will, be, what will we be holding on to as we stand before God? And the writer's saying your only hope is to hold on to Jesus, what he has done. Implicit in this is that God is unspeakably holy. And that we, by nature, are sinners. We're going to just touch on that a little bit more when we get to verse 15, I think. We're by nature sinners. And so how, who, who will stand before us? Who will go before us? Well, Jesus, the Son of God, he has offered up himself. And he has given his life as a sacrifice to satisfy God's wrath. More again on that later. And he, and this is what we celebrate in particular on this Resurrection Sunday, he rose from the grave. He defeated death, sin, and the grave. But because he was perfect, God vindicated his work, his sacrifice, by raising him from the grave. And now he is alive and he is ascended at the right hand of God, and he commands all of us to turn from our sins and trust in him. Friends, if you don't hear anything else today, if you're, if you're maybe here for the first time, or you're not yet a believer, or you're kind of cloudy on what Christianity is, and maybe you have wrongly been taught that it's a kind of moral ethic or, or a religion that is, is sort of helping you to do better in this world, that's not it. It's it's not a set of resolutions that you make to try and live more purposefully or better in this life. Although, if you live for God, certainly part of that will be true. But it is the good news that we cannot save ourselves. We have nothing to commend us 
before a holy God. And God has solved this problem by sending his son to represent us before him. And he 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 accepts Jesus's sacrifice. He raises him from the grave and all those who will trust in him and not themselves. That's our confession. They will be reconciled to God. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, that's what you hold on to. That's what you hold on to. That's the most important thing about you if you are a believer. And that will be the only thing that will save you. Think about just the things we by nature, just almost as we drift, even in the Christian life, hold on to. Maybe it's some social status or standing, or maybe maybe the fact that you are doing something in ministry, and maybe you've you're, you're, you're helping other people. That's, those are wonderful things to do. But friends, do you realize that the, the writer of Hebrews, he's, he's like he's putting ammonia underneath our punch-trunk nostrils as we sort of get lost in this world and we think that we're doing something. No, our confession is not that we're good, not that God is pleased with us in any way in and of ourselves, but that he is pleased with his son and our only hope is to hold on to Jesus. You don't grow out of that. You don't mature out of that. Christian maturity is understanding that deeper and deeper more in your life and becoming more aware of your need to confess Jesus and only Jesus. That's verse 14. He goes on and he says in verse 15, a little bit more about this high priest. This is so good. Verse 15. Come on, verse 15. Look, verse 15. If, If you're a sticky note type of person, and you like to leave yourself sticky notes, I commend verse 15 as a wonderful sticky note verse. Okay, this is a great verse for you to memorize, for you to dwell on, for you to put on the dashboard of your car, or for you to put on your mirror in the morning and look at that sticky note instead of yourself. Listen to verse 15, a little bit more about this high priest. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Now, the first part of verse 15 is really interesting. It's a, it's a, it's a double negative. And, and I think in a technical sense, it's not the best grammar. Um, I've told you before that I uh, had my mother as my freshman year English teacher. I grew up in kind of a smaller town, one high school, one freshman English class. There was no getting out of mom's English class. And she took no mercy on me, and many of the papers that I turned in came back with red marks on them with a little, you know, dash, mom, love you. <laughs> and I think if I would have turned in this into mom, my freshman year of English, this sentence, it might have come back. But see, mom, what you don't understand is that the Holy Spirit wrote this sentence, so it's grammatically perfect. <laughs> but what's going on here? Why does the writer of Hebrews say it this way? For we do not have a high priest who is unable or not able to sympathize with our weaknesses. Why why couldn't he have just said, we have a high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses? Why doesn't he just put it that way? It's, It's saying the same thing. Well, I think what's going on here is that the the Holy Spirit is inspiring the writer of Hebrews to answer really what is a very common, almost universal objection in the hearts of God's people. Because there's, there's, a, there's, there's a kind of gap, isn't there, 
Verse 14, let's look at it. Look, Jesus has passed through the heavens. He's done these things. He's, he's, he's stood before God for us. And, and we're, we're, we're in a sense, we can say, okay, well, that's true. I see it up there. That's undeniable. I've read the rest of the Bible. I believe these things to be true. But friends, you don't know me. You don't know, but does he really understand me? There can be this kind of gap between what we confess on a theoretical level and what we actually feel in our own hearts and he understands the objection he says well listen we we might say well okay that's true for you but but Jesus has never been through what I'm going through right now he cannot sympathize with my weaknesses is the objection of the human heart and so in response to that negative, he's answering that negative with a negative by saying, no, no, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with your weaknesses. That's wrong. But one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. Now let's just think about our weaknesses. Now friends, we could spend a whole month just building out uh, uh, just a, a short, short series on how needy we are. And friends, if, if you don't, if, if I could just impress one thing on, on, on your minds, and, and it's difficult because uh, we, we are probably the culture that has inoculated ourselves to this idea of weakness more than any other in the history of mankind, and it, it works against us spiritually. Well, praise God for the American entrepreneurial spirit and strength Praise God for, you know, Wi-Fi and, and uh, interstate systems. Come on, you can get on a road, and you can drive all the way across the country and never, what, what, we just act like, oh, wow, man, man, and there's a pothole and we complain. No, no, come on. Praise God for the advancements of our culture. Do you know, this is crazy. I'm, I'm still amazed by this. I'm still amazed by this. I grew up in California. Most of my family is still there. If I gave you a piece of paper and I put it in an envelope and I went to you and I said, Van Palmer, I'm going to give you 55 cents. Can you get this to my mom in San Diego by Friday for 55 cents? What? Are you crazy, Brad? No, I got stuff to do. No, but we, we, we got a mail system. Friends, come on. Praise God for human ingenuity and strength. Friends, do you not appreciate the postal service? I know there's some issues. I know postal workers can be grumpy. I get all that. But they're taking your stuff across the country for two quarters. <laughs> come on now. You can get in a plane. You can get in a plane, which is basically a metal tube. And there's... Something called jet propulsion that will shoot you over the ocean. And you will land in Europe in about six hours. You can pick up a little box of plastic, punch in some numbers, and it sends something up into the air. <laughs> and, and then there's stuff rotating and it grabs it. Now, now, don't act like you know this. None of you totally understand this. And then it sends it back down into somebody else's little piece of plastic, and you can have a conversation across the world. 
for free. Well, I mean, you got to pay Verizon or whatever, but anyway. I mean, praise God for human ingenuity and strength and advancement and all that kind of stuff. I mean, I thank God for that. But friends, don't let that dupe you. Don't let that fool you. We are so utterly weak. We, even the best of us, even the best of us, are weak and frail and have nothing in and of ourselves to commend us to God. And the text here is saying that we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our frailties, with our weaknesses. Listen, if you're a teenager in here today, this world, your, our culture will shout at you that you are okay and that you can just look down deep inside and anything that you're feeling is valid and that you're okay. Don't buy that lie. Here's what you must realize, and this seems counterintuitive. Actually, the good news of the gospel is that you're not okay. And until you actually realize that you're not okay, you will never be pushed to the only one who can make you okay. So one of the great spiritual battles in our culture is to just make us feel like we're okay. We are not okay. Friends, embrace the fact that we are weak, that we are wounded, that we are sick. We are sore. In fact, the Bible tells us in and of ourselves, we are born dead in our sins. And the text here is saying that we have a high priest who is not unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but who one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So think about the humility of this, that Jesus has the creator of the world, he's the second person of the Trinity. He leaves temporarily his majestic place in heaven and he becomes like us in every respect and is tempted. He experiences, he faces, he tastes life in this fallen world, yet he does it. And this is miraculous. This is glorious. This is on some level incomprehensible. He does it in a way where he endures our weakness sinlessly. Yet without sin. Yet without sin. Now how do you put these two things together? How can... Come on, there's some mysteries in the Bible. How can Jesus experience everything that we, all of our temptations in every respect and do it yet without sin. How do those two things fit together, friends? I don't know the complete answer to that question, but I see it in Scripture and I see a Savior, a God who sympathizes with us, who is compassionate on his people, who has endured everything that we endure, who's experienced all that we have experienced, and instead of yielding to it, he endures it perfectly, yet without sin. 
And why is this so important? Why is this so important? Because remember what we talked about in the previous verse when Jesus is standing before God? We need, we need not just a good man to represent us. We need a perfect man to represent us. We need a sinless Savior. Back in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17, it says that Jesus, it says he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, Hebrews 2.17, so that he might became, become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. Here's this important word. If you're from Crosspoint, you know this word. To make propitiation for the sins of the people. What does that mean? Well, friends, we, we've arrived. We've arrived at the very heart of the Bible. Propitiation. Propitiation. In fact, if you said, I could only have one word, one word from the Bible, it would be this word. Propitiation. And that word propitiation means, it means a sacrifice that stands in the place of another and it satisfies, it absorbs, it extinguishes, it cancels the wrath for the other person. It absorbs God's wrath and takes it away. That's only half of it. It not only takes it away, it turns it into God's favor and grace. That's what Jesus has done. And he could only do that by being a sympathetic Savior without sin. Jesus on the cross without sin, a perfect spotless lamb, the lamb who was slain is the one who takes away the wrath of God. That's why Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because it's gone. And so what's the conclusion of the writer? Verse 16. And verse 16. I know I say every verse is amazing. It, 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 it is on some level. It is, but come on now. Verse, verse 16. Come on now. Listen to the conclusion of the writer. Let us then, this is, what he, this is what he takes from this. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So these same people that he's described in verse 15 as weak who need the sympathy of Christ are the same people that as a result of what Christ has done in his death, burial, resurrection, without sin, his victorious work on the cross. Because of that, verse 16, so there's a lot in between verses 15 and 16 that goes unsaid. Jesus' death, his sinless, spotless death, he propitiating God's wrath for us, turning it from anger and punishment for our rebellion into sin, victoriously triumphing over it in the resurrection. Because of that, verse 16, the conclusion, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Confidence. What, what, a, what a word. Sinners who were weak, who needed sympathy, are now encouraged, one verse later, to boldly come to the throne 
of grace. Now, what does the throne of grace mean? Now, we know it's not just a, it's not actually, he's not pointing us to an actual throne. It's kind of like when we speak of, uh, of uh, the, the English uh, Queen Elizabeth. I, 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 love, I love her, and she just passed away, and I lost her name here for a second. You know, the, the lady, she's wonderful. She was Queen of England for a long time. Didn't say much, but was on TV a lot. You know her? Uh, you know that, that Netflix series, The Crown? We know when we say the crown, we're not talking about the actual thing that sits on the queen's head. We're, we're, we're talking about a, a person, a queen. And that's what's going on here. We, we draw near, not to some physical thing, some particular throne that God is sitting on, but to God. And how is it described of all the things that it could be said about God in heaven in his glory, it could be a throne of power. It could be a throne of majesty, a throne of glory. But the writer chooses to describe it as a throne of grace. That we may receive mercy. Remember what we talked about in verse 14? That in this holy of holies, in this place where the Ark of the Covenant is, the holiest place on earth in the Old Testament that the priest once a year would go into. And if he went into this presence without being clean, without offering prayers of incense, without all the ritualistic things that he had to do, he'd be struck dead. And in this place, in this mercy seat, he would sprinkle the blood in this place where God's holiness and his wrath is satisfied. The writer is drawing our attention to that. We come to this holy of holies, the throne of grace where God is. And the writer is saying, come to him. And what do you find when you get there? Mercy. That's why you can come confidently because anything that you've done, there's nothing that can trump the mercy of Christ and the perfection of his sacrifice for you. So what's holding you back? What's holding you back? Are you held back by something, some, some weakness that you think that he can't sympathize with? Something that you think disqualifies you from coming into this place? Friends, Nothing is stronger than the work of Christ for his people. There is nothing that he cannot atone for. And so the implication is, the exhortation is, with confidence draw near to this place, not because you're good, not because you are clean, but because the priest is clean, because the priest is perfect, and the priest hasn't offered up the blood of a bull or a goat. He has offered up himself, and himself is the perfection of God, which satisfies the holiness of God. And so he says something that just seems so counterintuitive to us. Run into that place with confidence that you may receive mercy, past tense, and find grace to help in time of need, present tense, and future tense. We not only need the mercy seat for everything that we bring into that place, we need grace now. So the good news of the gospel is not just the past forgiveness of sins, but a new heart and the enablement to live for God for the rest of your life. Here's the conclusion, friends. 
It's where we started. The writer's telling us to hold fast to Jesus, to hold on to him. That is your confession. That is the only thing that can commend you to God. If you're a Christian, you need to remember this deeper and deeper. You need to become more convinced of this in your life. I need more of this. If you're not yet a believer, the good news of the gospel is not that you can clean yourself up, but that only Jesus can. And not only do you need to hold fast to Jesus, but we have the great privilege to draw near to God with confidence. Sinners who need sympathy, sinners who are weak, we can draw near to God with confidence because of what Jesus has done on the cross. I pray that you would do that today. If you've never known this, I pray that you would not leave this room today without finding somebody to talk deeper, more fully about this with. And if you're a Christian, I pray that today maybe you might be reminded and fall deeper in love with your high priest. Let me pray. Lord, as we now see our brother CJ baptized, as we hear the wonderful words of his testimony being read by Colby, who was instrumental in leading him to the Lord. Lord, may we revel that sinners like us, sinners like CJ, that have been made new, can hold fast to Jesus and draw near to the throne of grace with confidence. I pray all this, Lord, in Jesus' name.